This sermon is rated M for Mature. Please feel free to bring your kids to our amazing kids' church just down the hall. Thank you. Well, good morning, New Day. So good to see you guys wherever you're joining us from today, here in person or online. Let me say how happy I am that you decided to join us for the continuation of our current teaching series called Christ the King, where we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. Now, I don't do this every week, but every four to six weeks or so, I like to go ahead and remind us of where we are in Matthew's gospel. So for the sake of those, uh, for the sake of, those of you who are joining us for the first time today, uh, let me kind of say this. Right now in Matthew's gospel, we're at the portion that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And friends, this is Jesus' most famous sermon. This sermon was given on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters for ministry, where huge crowds of people gathered to hear Jesus preach. You see, because of Jesus' many healing miracles, his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And if you take a look at the map, you'll see that the Roman province of Syria included all the land of Israel and more. We learn from Matthew chapter 4 that people came out to Jesus from the region of Galilee. People came out to Jesus from the region of Decapolis. People came to Jesus from the region of Jerusalem and all of Judea. And people came to Jesus even from beyond the Jordan, which is a reference to the region of Perea. And friends, these were the crowds that Jesus preached his sermon to. Now, what did Jesus preach on? Well, you won't be surprised at all to hear that Jesus, who came to save us from our sins, preached a sermon on salvation. And the theme of his sermon really is uh, kingdom citizenship. Jesus is teaching the people about citizenship in the eternal kingdom that God has appointed him to one day rule over forever. And so Jesus begins his sermon telling the crowds about the happiness that they could find if they became citizens of his kingdom. And then Jesus lets them know, though, that should you choose to become a citizen in my kingdom, uh, I will require you to serve me on this earth as salt and light. And Jesus says to them, should you choose to be a citizen in my kingdom, it will be expected of you that you would live in accordance with the word of God. And so Jesus is just speaking about citizenship in his eternal kingdom. And naturally, in speaking about uh, such citizenship, the people developed an interest in becoming citizens. So Jesus has kind of set the stage, and now that they're interested in becoming a citizen and living in his kingdom for all eternity, Jesus goes ahead and tells them specifically how they could go about doing that. And what Jesus tells them in a nutshell is this. To become a citizen in my kingdom, you have to acknowledge your sinfulness and you have to go ahead and cry, cry out to me for salvation. But there was a big problem. Most of the people in his audience, especially the religious leaders, but most of the other people too, didn't really view themselves as sinful. Far from viewing themselves as sinful, each one thought of himself as basically a good person, just like most of us do today. 
So beginning in verse 21, Jesus sets out to convince his audience of two things. Number one, that they were sinners. And number two, that they needed a savior. And to help them see this reality, Jesus gives them six different examples of their sinfulness. Andrew covered the first of the six examples last week, and today I'm covering the second. But what I want you to remember is that all six examples are given to show the people that they are sinful before a holy God and in need of a Savior. All right, all that by way of introduction. I just want you to understand where we're at in Matthew's gospel. And now that hopefully you do, let's dive into the text we're studying today. Our text today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. And in these verses, we see the king's teaching on adultery. Now, let me just point out real quick before we dive in, one of the many benefits of just teaching uh, a book of the Bible from beginning to end. There's many benefits, but one of the big ones is this. It forces us to go ahead and cover sensitive topics and sensitive subject matters like the one we're studying today. I mean, if you're just picking as a preacher here and there, you don't naturally go to sermons on murder like we covered last week. You don't naturally go to sermons on divorce like we're covering next week, nor do you go just naturally to sermons on adultery like we're covering today. But friends, when you just preach your way through a book of the Bible beginning to end, you are forced to cover all the topics, not just the ones that you would prefer uh, to cover. So I just want to point that out to you. Okay, again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, and in these verses we see the king's teaching on adultery. Adultery has become so commonplace in our culture, hasn't it? I mean, in case you don't know, there's actually a show that's been 22 years in the running that's dedicated exclusively to the subject of adultery. It's called Cheaters. Cheaters is a weekly syndicated reality TV show featuring couples where one partner is committing adultery or cheating on the other partner. Investigations are headed by the Cheaters Detective Agency, and here's a typical format for a show. The complainant will share how they met their spouse and why they think their spouse is cheating. The narrator then describes the progress of the investigation, sharing whatever evidence of infidelity their private investigators have found. This leads to what's called the confrontation, where the faithful spouse, along with the camera crew, show up to confront the unfaithful spouse while they are spending time with the person they're cheating with. So what I'm saying is the entire show is dedicated to this subject of adultery. Well, likewise, today's whole sermon is dedicated to that same subject. Today in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, Jesus is teaching us about adultery. And in our passage, he lets us know what adultery is. He lets us know the scope of what counts as adultery. And he also shares with us the key to overcoming adulterous desires, adulterous glances, adulterous thoughts, as well as adulterous deeds. Let me read you our text. 
Jesus told the crowds, the many, many people who had come to him from all those previously mentioned regions throughout Syria, Jesus told the crowds this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If you're taking notes today, the very first thing that we see in our text is what we're going to call the command. The command. And we see this in verse 27 where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Friends, Jesus is quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. It's the seventh of the ten commandments. Thou shall not commit adultery. Now, since we're talking about adultery today, let's go ahead and begin with what I think is a very user-friendly definition of adultery. Adultery can be defined as sex outside of marriage. Fornication is sex before marriage, and adultery is sex outside of marriage. Now, I don't want anyone leaving here today having a negative view of sex. God gave us sex as a gift. And all the married couples in the house said, Amen. That's right. Okay. That wasn't a very strong amen. I might need to do a different kind of sermon series in the future here. Sex is a gift of God. And all the married people in the house said, amen. amen. That's better. That's better. Okay. Let me give you some homework to do after church today. God commands that sex be enjoyed because he gave it to us as a gift, but he commands that it be enjoyed only in the confines of a married relationship between a man and a woman. And once that man and woman are married, God commands that they enjoy a sexual relationship exclusively with each other. Solomon instructs his son, why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. You say, Mike, what if we've agreed on an open marriage? Mike, what if we've agreed uh, to watch pornography together? Mike, what if we've agreed to add a third party into the mix, you know, just to spice things up? We, we've agreed on it, so is it okay? Well, no, it doesn't matter what you've agreed on. It only matters what God commands. Even a cyber affair, soliciting sex online, is also adultery because, friends, it's sex outside of marriage. And sex outside of marriage is condemned, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. In other words, throughout the entirety of Scripture. For example, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And the idea is uh, living in this kind of lifestyle perpetually without repentance. 
And friends, this sin of adultery was taken very seriously in the nation of Israel. It was such a heinous crime um, against God and against your spouse and against the spouse of the person that you cheated with that in ancient Israel it was a crime punishable by death. We read in Leviticus chapter 20, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Likewise, we read in Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And I bring up these verses simply to say this, this was a sin that God took very seriously. In our American culture today, we make shows about adultery for our entertainment, but in ancient Israel, this was something very serious in God's eyes. Serious uh, because of the deleterious effects of an adulterous affair. Adultery destroys trust, often permanently. Adultery can destroy not just the marriage, but even the family uh, when and where children are involved. In the one that's been cheated on, adultery causes anxiety, depression, rage, self-blame, and shame. And then for the one that's done the cheating, adultery creates crippling uh, guilt as well as intense fear. They feel horrible about what they've done, but in addition to feeling terrible, terrible guilt and shame, uh, they additionally fear their spouse not forgiving them, or they fear their children finding out, and they fear what will come of that if that happens. In light of all this, in light of all the pain and the devastation that adultery brings to the marriage, to the family, and to all involved, it's amazing to me that companies like Ashley Madison still exist. This company was founded in 2002 by Darren Morgenstern with the slogan, get this, life is short, have an affair. At New Day, our slogan is casual dress, serious faith. All right, that's our slogan. But for Ashley Madison, it's life is short, have an affair. You may recall how in 2015, hackers stole all of Ashley Madison's customer data, including emails, names, home addresses, sexual fantasies, as well as credit card information. And they threatened the company saying, shut down your site immediately or we will post all this info online. Well, the company didn't shut down and all the data was posted online and it just destroyed so many lives. I even read of a Baptist pastor who committed suicide after learning that his information was posted for all the world to see. And many others did as well. Now here's the deal. You would think that after um, something crazy like this that the company would no longer exist. Quite the opposite. They currently boast 70 million users and claim to be responsible for facilitating, on average, one million adulterous affairs a month. These 70 million people apparently think they're having fun, just living it up, life short, YOLO, and all that stuff. But the reality is they're playing with fire. Solomon warned his son as follows in Proverbs 6, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. 
Friends, even if you're not punished physically, as was the case in Israel, as we mentioned, the terrible guilt, the terrible shame, the terrible feel, fear is, is just punishment in and of itself. So Solomon's saying, if you're so foolish as to build a fire in your lap, you're going to experience third-degree burns. And if you're so foolish as to uh, engage in an adulterous uh, affair, you can expect third-degree pain to come into your life as a result. And friends, this is why we have the command in Scripture, you shall not commit adultery. It's because God created us and he loves us. He's not trying to keep us from having fun. He's trying to spare us from unfathomable pain. And so we see the command. And now that you've seen the command, let's look at the second thing that we see in our text, which is this. We'll call it the clarification. First the command, now the clarification. And a clarification is needed because a lot of Jesus' audience back then, just like us today, have a very limited and actually unscriptural view of what counts as adultery. And so Jesus clarifies in verse 28. Here's what he says. He says, okay, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But now he goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's moving beyond the external act and saying more is involved in adultery than just the external act. He says, lust is a form of adultery. Now, let me just kind of explain the difference uh, between lust and sexual attraction. Because again, in church circles, sometimes we just view sex as this dirty topic and we sexual attraction and there's just like, oh, let's not talk about it. Let's, let's feel shame about it and this and that. Friends, when you see someone uh, of the opposite sex and you are, you, wow, she's beautiful or for you ladies, wow, you know, he, he's handsome, you know, uh, and, and there is a sexual attraction. Did you know that God put that in you? Did you know that's a good thing? When you're young, it's that sexual desire and attraction that steers you towards a mate, which is what God wants. He says, be fruitful and multiply. So he puts within you sexual desire to drive you into marriage so that you can reproduce and have children. Friends, this is God's doing. It's nothing bad. It's nothing to be ashamed of. When you see a beautiful woman, guys, uh, ladies, when you see a, a, a handsome man and you're sexually attracted, that's a good thing. God put that in you. That is not lust. Lust is when feeling that sexual attraction, you go in your mind somewhere as a married person, you could not go with your body. Do you understand? So lust is just adulterous thoughts. Adulterous deeds would be committing the external act of adultery. Adulterous thoughts, aka lust, is when you go in your mind somewhere you could not go as a married person with your body. So please understand the difference. Sexual attraction is, is a gift from God. It's to be celebrated. It accomplishes God's purpose. Lust is sinful and is a form of adultery. So I hope you understand uh, the difference between the two. No need to feel guilty for being sexually attracted to someone, but one should feel guilty should you go in your mind somewhere as a married person. The Bible forbids you to go. 
Now, ladies, even though Jesus is giving the example of a man looking with lustful intent at a woman, uh, you are certainly not off the hook today. It is just as wrong for a woman to look lustfully as a man. Now, I labeled this point the clarification because here Jesus is clarifying what actually counts as adultery. And he's actually expanding our understanding of what counts in God's eyes as adultery. Here's your next fill in the blank if you're taking notes. We often only think in terms of the external act, but the external act is not the only thing that counts in God's eyes as adultery. Friends, it's like this. Last week, Andrew, for those of you who are new, he's our executive pastor. Last week, Andrew preached a wonderful sermon, The King's Teaching on Murder. And what we learned last week was that the external act is where murder ends or culminates. But what we learned last week was that murder begins in the heart. It begins long before the external act. Andrew said that murder begins in our heart. And then murder moves to our mouth as we express murderous anger with our, with our words. And then from our mouth, murder moves to our hands where through violence we end the life of another human being. So it ends with the external act, but it begins so much sooner. And every stage of the process is counted in God's eyes as murder. Well, there's a parallel between Jesus' teaching on murder and Jesus' teaching this week on adultery. Yes, the external act is where adultery culminates. It's where it ends. But friends, it begins so much sooner. It begins with adulterous desires in the heart, then it moves to adulterous glances with the eyes, and then it moves to adulterous thoughts in the mind, and then from adulterous thoughts in the mind, it sometimes culminates with some people in adulterous deeds with their body. But friends, here's the deal. Just like with murder, as in every stage of murder is murder, every stage of adultery is adultery. To participate in any part of the process is to commit the sin in God's eyes. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Take a look. He says, from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. So you see, it begins in the heart. It ends in the external act, but there are numerous stages along the way, every one of which is sinful in God's eyes. Now, maybe after point one, you were feeling pretty good. Maybe after the command, thou shall not commit adultery, you were like, I'm good. I mean, there's 10 commandments. At least I'm not guilty of one of them. Sorry to disappoint. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. Because it's not just the external act that counts. When we move from the command to the clarification and come to realize that in God's eyes, adulterous desires, adulterous glances, adulterous thoughts, it all counts as adultery. We realize we actually come here today on level playing field. We are all guilty before God. In last week's sermon, we probably walked in here thinking, I'm not a murderer, I'm safe when it comes to that. And then we left realizing, no, I'm a serial murderer, you know? <laughs> in the same way, maybe we showed up today thinking, I'm not guilty of adultery, but the reality is we all are by God's standards, whether or not we've committed the external act. 
Now, if you've had the realization, I'm not only a murderer at heart, I'm an adulterer at heart, then Jesus has accomplished his goal. This is the realization he's trying to help us to have. Because it's only once we realize that before God the Father we are sinful that we will call out to God the Son to be saved. So we see the clarification. It's not only the external act that counts. Every stage of adultery is sin in God's eyes. All right, now that you've seen the command and the clarification, let's look at the third and final thing we see in our text, which we're going to call the cleansing, the cleansing. And we see this in verses 29 to 30. And in these verses, Jesus teaches us, practically speaking, how we can be victorious over adulterous desires and adulterous glances and adulterous thoughts and adulterous deeds. And here is Jesus's instruction. If you want to be victorious over the sin of adultery, then here's what you do. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Likewise, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now the question begs, what in the world did Jesus mean by what he taught here? Okay, before you go gouging out your eye, all right? Let's understand this. Jesus was speaking figuratively, not literally. And friends, we know this because you can go ahead and gouge out your right eye and continue to perform lustful glances with your left eye. You can go ahead and cut off your right hand so it doesn't commit adulterous caresses, but guess what? You still have a left hand. So understand, Jesus is speaking figuratively of anything that causes us to be tempted. Likewise, when he speaks of gouging out our eye or cutting off our hand, he's speaking figuratively of doing something, even if it's extreme, to eliminate a source of temptation from your life. So bringing this all together, Jesus is saying, you need to cut out of your life. Let's put that up, fill in the blank. Here we go. Jesus is saying you need to cut out of your life anything that causes you to be tempted, even if radical steps must be taken to eliminate the temptation. So friends, this is huge. Please don't miss the significance of what I just said. What Jesus is saying is that there are many, many sources of temptation that are completely within our control to cut out of our lives. Now, we all know we can't eliminate all temptation. That's impossible on this side of eternity. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. There are many sources of temptation that we 100% have control of to cut out of our lives. And Jesus says... If you have control over it, eliminate it from, our, from your life. Now, friends, the reality is, in large part, we have a lot of control over our life, right? I mean, we have control over where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we read, the company we keep, and even the conversations that we have. So we actually have control over a lot, even if we don't have control over everything in our lives. And practically speaking, the way we cleanse ourselves of this sin of adultery is to do what we can, when and where we can, to cut out of our life any tempting influence. Friends, it's like this. The Apostle James writes this in James chapter 1, verse 14. He, he writes, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. 
Now, that being the case, when we keep tempting influences in our life that we have the power to eliminate, they serve only one purpose in our life, to stir up sinful desires. It's like this. Last year, I lost like 25 pounds. This year, I'm trying to keep that trend going. I got a long way to go and all this stuff. And I do something every time I go in Costco that is entirely counterproductive to my goals. I go through the checkout line, and then I just mosey on by the food court looking at the pizza. And I just kind of sort of stare at the pepperoni pizza. And I just look at it, and I go near it, and I go, and what does it do? All it does, the only purpose that it serves is to stir up desire. Well, that's exactly what we do when we have the ability to remove a tempting influence in our life, but we just keep it there. All it does is serve to stir up sinful desire, and it's completely counterproductive to our goal of living holy before our holy God. So Jesus says, get rid of it. What you have control over, get rid of it. Doesn't matter how inconvenient it might be to do so, get rid of it. As I was preparing this sermon for you all today, immediately the Spirit of God brought to my mind and my heart an area of my life that I've left open to tempting influence. I'll be honest with you, I work really hard at this. I view temptation as a door, and I'm always looking to close any open doors to temptation because I know all it does is serve to stir up sinful desires in my heart. But God the Holy Spirit pointed out to me one area that I had left open. So you, you can eliminate that. Now, if I'm candid and honest before you, which I should be as a Christian and which I should be as a preacher, so I will. If I'm honest before you, as soon as I thought about how I needed to get rid of it, I, the very next thing I thought of was five good reasons that I probably, you know, just, it's okay to keep this in my life. I just began to justify keeping a clear source of temptation in my life. Has anyone else ever done that besides me? All right, all two of you, that's awesome leave me hanging up here. No, I'm just kidding. It's so tempting to just justify why it's okay to leave a source of temptation in our life. But Jesus says, if it's within your control, cut it out. So I did. And I'm so happy that I did. Now, here's my question for you. What comes to mind for you? In other words, what's one source of temptation that you are allowing to remain in your life? This is the application question for you today. What's one source of temptation? You say, Mike, why didn't you say five sources? Because if you put your focus on eliminating five sources, you'll eliminate none. So let's take one step in the right direction today. What is one source of temptation that you know God wants you to eliminate for your life? What is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to your heart right now? And the question is, what will you do about it? You have two choices. One, in obedience to God's word, you can cut it out of your life. Two, you can choose to justify it and leave it right where it is, allowing it to continue to trip you up. You say, Mike, is this really necessary, all this? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Well, friends, the answer is a resounding yes. Jesus says it's a big deal for this reason. He actually gives like the reason or the motivation for us to go ahead and deal with the inconvenience of cutting out uh, temptations from our life. And the reason is this. He says it's better to go through the hassle of cutting them out than to go through the hassle of living in hell for all eternity. 
as Jesus put it in a parallel passage from Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying in our passage today from Matthew 5. As inconvenient as it might be to remove the tempting influences from our life, it's not nearly as inconvenient as living forever in hell. So Jesus says, just cut it out. Cut out the tempting influence, no matter the cost or the hassle. And so we see the cleansing. How practically speaking, we can cleanse our lives from adulterous desires and glances and thoughts and deeds. Now, I think it very fitting today to go ahead and end exactly where we began. With a reminder of what Jesus is trying to accomplish through this teaching. Remember, Jesus was speaking to people who were self-righteous. They thought, a sinner? I'm not, I'm not a sinner. I, 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 I have right standing with God. I'm, I'm good with God. Me and God are good. I'm not a horrible sinner like other people. Here's all the good things I do. I'm a good person. And Jesus knows that such a view will keep someone from becoming a citizen in his eternal kingdom and living with God the Father in heaven forever. And so Jesus in love confronts us directly with our sin. And he points it out to us for the purpose that we might repent and be saved. He began last week with his first example of our sinfulness, showing us that we're all guilty of murder. And now today he's given us the second example of our sinfulness, showing us that we're all guilty of adultery. And in the weeks to come, we'll see four more examples of our sinfulness because Jesus doesn't want anyone justifying their own self-righteousness. So he just, he just attacks one area and then another and then another and then another and then another and then another, just showing the whole world that they stand guilty before God. This is his goal. And friends, since this is what he's trying to accomplish through his teaching, let's go ahead and personalize the message with some questions. This is a private response between you and God. Answer in your heart. Have you had adulterous desires in your heart? Have you had adulterous glances with your eyes? Have you had adulterous thoughts in your mind? And maybe for some of you, has this culminated in adulterous acts with your body. Men, have you looked lustfully on a woman? Women, have you looked lustfully upon a man? Ladies, have you dressed in a way to intentionally stir up lustful desires in a man? Men, have you dressed in a way to stir up lustful desires in a woman? Friends, if it's wrong to lust, it is wrong to dress in a way to stir up lust in another person. Friends, what Jesus is trying to show us today that it's, it's not just the external act with the body that makes us guilty before a holy God. Adultery is a process. It begins in the heart, moves to the eyes, moves to the mind, and culminates with the body. And if we're honest, all of us would confess today before God that we are guilty. And friends, this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
Because admitting that we're guilty brings us one step closer to being saved. Now, friends, we're guilty of the sin of adultery. We're guilty of murder. We're, we're guilty of adultery. And the bad news is all sin must be punished. And the worse news than that is that there's only one punishment for sin, which is death. But the good news is that God lets us decide who dies for our sins, us or Jesus. Isn't that amazing that we even have the choice? But God says, you can die for your sins by going to hell for all eternity. In the Bible, hell is referred to as the second death. It's spiritual death. And God says, you want to die for your sins, then you can go to hell for all eternity and pay the penalty for sin, which is death. But God says, but I love you. I created you. And I wanted to spare you from the consequences of sin, but you've given in. And so I've provided a way of escape. I've sent my one and only son, Jesus the Christ, to come to earth and to be punished on the cross for your sins. And if you'll ask me to, God says, I will count Jesus' punishment as yours. Friends, why can we go free? Why can our sins be forgiven? Why can we become citizens of the eternal kingdom of Christ and live there with God forever? We can go free because our sins have already been punished on the cross of Christ. Some people wonder, Mike, is it hard for you to preach on topics like this? Not at all. Because it's not righteous Mike preaching to the sinful people of New Day. <laughs> Fellow sinner telling other sinners how to be saved. You say, Mike, what's the difference between me and you? I've committed adultery, you're a preacher, this and that. What's the difference between me and you? The only difference is this. I've asked God to count Jesus' death on the cross as mine. I, I, I've said, God, I, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a savior. And I know that sin needs to be punished by death. But would you count Jesus' death as my own so that I can live? That's the only difference between me and you. If you haven't already done that. Friends, today, if you've sinned, you need to get right with God. And the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. So that's all of us. And if today you want to recognize your sin, if today you want to acknowledge before God what he already knows, and if today, uh, like me, you want to call out to God asking him to count Jesus' punishment as your own, he will. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll grant to you eternal life. He'll grant to you citizenship in his eternal kingdom. But it's not automatic. You have to ask. And that's why today we're going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask those of you online, those of you here in person, those of you out in the foyer, those of you uh, watching on one of the screens throughout the building, wherever you are, would you just make where you are a place of prayer? Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And maybe you'd say something along these lines to God in your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for lovingly pointing out my sin. I realize you're not just up in heaven acting in a maniacal way. Just, oh, look how bad you are, you evil sinner. Ah, ha, ha. God, I know that that's not your heart. You point out my sin so that I can confess it before you to be forgiven by you through Jesus. God, I thank you for pointing out my sin for that purpose. I'm grateful. 
It's an understanding of sin that drives me to the Savior. And so, God, I look today in faith to Jesus. I thank you for sending him to die for my sins. And I thank you that through him I can go free because through him my sins have been punished. God, count his death as my death. Count his punishment as my punishment so that I can go free. God, it is so above my spiritual pay grade to even understand why this is an option, but this is clearly taught in your word. So God, instead of trying to understand the depths of your grace and your mercy and your love for me, God, I, I just accept it. God, I receive the eternal life. You're granting me today through faith in Christ. God, I receive citizenship in your kingdom that you've appointed Jesus to rule over forever. God, I'm so grateful for forgiveness of sin. I'm so grateful for the cleansing that comes from the sin of adultery, but I'm also grateful for the cleansing that comes for all my other sins as well. Today, I stand on the promise of your word. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us of all sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, thank you for that cleansing. Thanks for making it possible through Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.